I'm Dr. Leif Tapanilla from the Idaho Museum of Natural History, and I'm here with Peter Pruitt from Zoo Idaho, and this is The Nature of Idaho. Coming to you from the 1B, Bannock County that is, we're talking all about Idaho, its wild places and wild faces, the natural setting that makes Idaho an incredible place to live and be proud of. Today our guest is David Panic. he's Executive Director at the Idaho Falls Zoo at Toffus Park. Peter, this is in your wheelhouse. Right up the road from us, Idaho Falls Zoo is great, great, oh, fun place it, to be. This is going to be a, an awesome conversation because, you know, I've spent time in very large zoos and now smaller zoos. And I think it's really important for a community, a smaller community like us in Pocatello and then Idaho Falls, to really embrace our small zoos. And we get to talk about all the wonderful opportunities that we give back to the community. We're going to dig into that very soon. But first, Peter, you've got nature news. Right. So, Leif, you know, with the changing climate and the practice of fire suppression, it has resulted in some really dramatic increases in catastrophic forest fires here out on the west side of the United States. Yes, indeed. And we've always talked about and wondered how we can reduce some of those intensities and the massiveness of these fires. And right. one thing that's always been kind of mentioned is you know, some of these prescribed burns within these forests. And I, coming from the Midwest, I'm quite familiar with prescribed burns. I mean, that's basically how prairies have been managed forever. And, you know, we finally have some data on just how important prescribed or low-intensity fires within a forest setting really truly is. Sure. And this research is coming out of Stanford and Columbia Universities. And we had a team of researchers composed of fire policy experts, public health scientists, and statistical scientists, because there's a lot of data. You know, they took 20 years of satellite monitoring of wildfires across more than 100,000 square kilometers of California forests. And what they found is that when they saw low-intensity fires, including the prescribed burns, on mixed conifer forests, it reduced the catastrophic fires by 60%. Wow, that's 60%. And they also found that these effects lasted for approximately six years at the 60% mark. And then seven, eight, nine years, you know, the percentages started to go back down again. And so when you look at a cost-effective measure on containing or controlling some of these catastrophic fires, Prescribed burning is really quite cost effective. You don't have to get in there with all this heavy equipment and start, you know, the manpower on, on removing a lot of the, the undergrowth and the fuel levels. It, it's costly and it, you can't do prescribed burns across all of the forest. You got to look at communities if you've got some cities there and some and other areas and you really want to make sure that it stays a low intensity fire. So in this case, we finally have a study that is maybe providing some evidence for what we suspected was a good approach right. of, of right. prescribed burns, actually yep. minimizing these these large megafires that right. obviously are a major concern. And the other thing about it too is these, these forests have evolved as part, you know, in response to fire. And we have, for instance, you know, the ponderosa pine, their bark is insanely thick. And right. they can handle a lot of these low-intensity fires. And then you've got some other trees like the lodgepole pine. It's really great. They drop their pine cones, and those cones don't crack open until there's right, the a fire that runs cone, through yeah. there. Right. That's right. And then we've got a short-leaf pine where the roots actually sprout after a fire. 
And so you've got these trees that are dependent on fire. Right. And, and then, you know, when you look at California, you've got the giant sequoia. And they're actually dependent on fire as well because you they need to have some of the understory burned out so they can grow into giant sequoias. Yep. And then we even have some bushes and shrubs like buckthorn, coffeeberry, and redberry whose seeds are actually activated by fire. So not only are we looking at reducing these catastrophic fires, but we are also increasing our forest health. Right. And the idea of suppressing fires not, uh, not so good. Is, is not so good because it's, it's part of how these organisms have evolved right. to, yeah, to right. reproduce and thrive. Yep. Very good. Well, today we're talking zoos, and our trivia question today is, when did the Idaho Falls Zoo begin? Our guest is going to know that answer, I bet, Peter. When we come back from the break, David Panic will join us to talk all about the Idaho Falls Zoo at Toffus Park, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Here at NPR, we try to reach all kinds of listeners. My name is Leo, and I'm eight years old. And we take feedback very seriously. I never hear much about nature or dinosaurs or things like that. So when Leo wrote us about our appalling lack of dinosaur coverage on All Things Considered, we knew we had to talk to him. Hi, Leo. Hi. I hear from your parents that you want to be a paleontologist when you grow up, and now we've got one on the line for you. Okay. <laughs> let me let you ask a question. How did dinosaurs grow to be so big? This is hard-hitting journalism because these are the types of questions that keep paleontologists up at night. In public radio, we value our relationship with each and every one of our listeners. You listen to us, and we listen to you too. So keep our connection strong. Donate to this station right now. Here's how. You know who covers dinosaurs really well. The Nature of Idaho on KISU. Support NPR and KISU programs by visiting KISU.org and click donate. Hey, welcome back from the break. I want to welcome our guest today, David Pennick. He's the executive director of the Idaho Falls Zoo at Toffis Park. Thank you for joining us today on The Nature of Idaho. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. I enjoy your program very much. Flattered that you'd ask me to be on too. Well, we've been wanting to chat with you and let's start off with, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, as you mentioned, I'm the executive director of the Otto Falls Zoo. I've been here for just about seven and a half years. I've enjoyed it tremendously. The, the world of zoos is a remarkable, interesting, inspiring, challenging world. And I've enjoyed it very much. Uh, before that, I was uh, many years at the Museum of Idaho in Idaho Falls. Before that, I was uh, exploring an academic track in conservation biology. And that's pretty much me in a nutshell. So, David, as, as you became the executive director, what kind of piqued your interest to even say, hmm, what, what, what is the Idaho Falls Zoo all about? And should I even apply for this director position? It's, it's a really great question because never in my professional life before this had I ever considered being part of a zoo. Um, I've always enjoyed zoos. I just never thought of it being part of my professional life. It just it never occurred to me that it was an option. But the zoo gives me a chance to go back to some of my roots. I, you know, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about and studying and doing research on wildlife and their conservation, their ecology and their evolutionary biology and teaching about it and doing research on it and all those things. And so it's something that I've been very passionate about all these years. 
And so as I started to look around for uh, what might be uh, the next chapter of my professional life and this zoo opportunity pop up, it was like, wow, what an interesting possibility. And the more I looked at it, the more interesting it became. And here seven years later, it's just been more wonderful than I ever imagined. It's just been fantastic. Why don't we talk a little bit about the zoo for folks who haven't been to it before? Can you describe the location and what kind of features you have there? Of course. So it's uh, it's an extraordinary place. Zoos themselves are, are often extraordinary. We certainly have one. And it's a very pleasant, beautiful, independent of the animals. It's a very pleasant sort of landscaped place to spend some time with your family. But the highlight, of course, are the extraordinary animals. And uh, as the wonderful zoo in Pocatello and Peter's Zoo focuses a little more on local wildlife of, of the West and of Idaho, we try to focus on international wildlife. And so we have about 130-some animals from just over 100 different species of all, all around the world. You know, big cats and primates and, you know, camels and zebras and, you know, all the, all the different things that you might imagine you'd see at a zoo in sort of a more compact, pleasant, lovely sort of space. So as, as you've kind of spent the last seven years at, at the zoo, when you, when you look at, say, a smaller zoo, like both of ours are in, in a smaller community, and have you had experience going to a, you know, a larger zoo and, and a larger metropolitan? You know, what are some of the differences that you might have noticed? Or what are the, some of the things that really inspire you being in a, a much smaller community with a zoo? Oh, what, a, what a great question, because the differences are big. I was just at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park just over the weekend with my daughter in San Diego. You know, like you, I've been to a lot of these big zoos and talked to their faculty and their staff and their directors and all those things. There's a lot of things that are similar, but there's a lot of things that are very different. And I think the best thing that's, the, that's different is the opportunity that a zoo in a smaller community has to impact its community. Our zoo, and I'm sure your zoo, your zoo as well, Peter, in your community has a much larger impact on the community than does a zoo in a large community, a large city. And I'll, I'll give you an example. This year in 2023, if you remember the city of Idaho Falls, we have about 167,000 people, excuse me, 67,000 people living in the community, maybe 130,000 people in Bonneville County, something like that. We hosted over 150,000 people in our zoo this year so far. And so the impact is big. The impact on how the, the percentage of your community you can reach is huge. The opportunity to have an impact on how that community views wildlife and interacts with wildlife and considers the conservation of wildlife, the opportunity to have an impact on your community is, is much, much larger. And then from the community standpoint, the, the zoos economic impact on the community is very, very big. So you look at that in excess of 150,000 people coming to Idaho Falls that has 67,000 people, two thirds of those people are not from Idaho Falls. So we had 50 something thousand people come to the zoo from Idaho Falls. All the remainder of them are from almost divided in half. Half of those remainder come from within about a hundred miles of Idaho Falls. So all those small communities all around, Salmon and Dubois from Wyoming and Montana and school groups from everywhere. 
you know, we have a great impact on all those small communities that have such limited resources in their in their tiny agricultural communities. But the other half of that remainder comes from all over the country and all over the world. They're they're on their way to Yellowstone. They're on their way to Teton National Park or or wherever, and they come to our zoo and enjoy it so much. And as far as the community concerns, the important thing about that, they bring their dollar with them. And if the zoo keeps them in Idaho Falls for a few hours, so they end up having lunch or they end up spending the night there or whatever, the economic impact ripples in an extraordinary fashion. So imagine having an organization in your town that can bring double the size of your city into your city every year. The economic opportunities and uh, possibilities that, that ripple from that are absolutely huge. And I don't believe our community has is working on it, but hasn't quite taken advantage of that opportunity to its fullest yet. But we're sure working with the Chamber of Commerce and other organizations to make sure we're optimizing that economic impact of, of a zoo. In a small community, that impact is much bigger, but not nearly as big as it is in a community like Idaho Falls or Pocatello. Absolutely. And so when we talk about economic impact, you also have a little project going on with your admissions with a conservation fee. Could you explain a little bit about the conservation fee and how that not only turns around and and does includes the economic impact for Idaho Falls, but for your conservation projects as well? Yeah, I don't I don't believe our communities and our society has really come to terms yet with the crisis that the world's wildlife is in right now. And we can talk about that later if you'd like. But that's another great thing about a zoo and a zoo in a small community. We can help our citizens make a difference. And uh, zoos do that in remarkable ways. The way we do it is when you come to the Idaho Falls Zoo. Part of your entrance fee is a conservation fee. You can't come to the Idaho Falls Zoo if you don't give some money to wildlife conservation. That's part of the experience of coming to the of coming to the Idaho Falls Zoo. And so we collect those funds. We have a conservation fund, and we have our international projects that we've chosen. We have them available for our visitors to choose the project that they would like their money to go to. And so we have three international projects. We also have local projects. Half of the money goes locally. Half the money goes internationally. And not only does it make a difference for the, the wildlife that is being protected as a result or the researchers that are working, including a graduate student right now at ISU is being supported by our conservation funds studying bats. Not only that, just as importantly, it gives our visitor, our citizens, a chance to engage what do I do? How do I how do I make a difference? It seems like such a big, big problem. What am I supposed to do here in Idaho Falls to really make a difference? Just coming to the zoo is a proactive engagement in the protection of the world's wildlife. And you can be proud of that. And then hopefully the zoo is a portal through which you can find new ways and learn new things and engage in different ways that can help you increase your impact on the wildlife of our planet. We raise, you know, 50, over $50,000 every year that goes to the conservation of wildlife in, in different places, mostly through our Borders for Conservation program. That's excellent. I, I love the idea of allowing and giving an opportunity to your visitors, uh, an opportunity to do something beyond themselves and even beyond the community. I think that's a, a, a really great springboard that the zoo, that zoos in general 
can do. Let's speak about some of the animals that you have. And I'm curious to know, are you allowed to have a favorite animal? <laughs> well, careful, I they am, might be listening. But I'll tell you, I get asked that question frequently <laughs> as I walk around on grounds. And my answer is always the same. I always say, people. People are my <laughs> favorite answer. animal at the zoo. <laughs> and, and, and the reason that they are is because our, our focus on the wildlife in, in our zoo is, is very intense. And their husbandry and their welfare and all the things that we go through are so, so important. So the staff gets to know these animals extremely well. And so it is easy to start getting favorites as they come and go as you know, you're interacting with this animal or that animal. But at the end of the day, the zoo is here so that people can have an opportunity to interact with wildlife and consider the natural world that they depend on, the wildlife depends on, and our visitors depend on in a new way, in a, in a deeper way. So what we don't want to do is have the zoo only be a place where you go and look at an animal and say, wasn't that fun? Because it is fun and it is wonderful. And that's the main reason everybody comes to a zoo. We love that. That's why I love zoos, love seeing those animals. But we hope that there's a step more. And that step is I look at myself in a little different way. I look in the way I interact with the natural world around me in a different way. I maybe realize in a more intimate fashion that I depend on the same resources that those that wildlife does. And I can make a, a more educated decision. Do I want wildlife or do I not want wildlife? And if I do want wildlife, what do I have to do to make sure that there's the resources available for wildlife and for people? I want to be here. I also want wildlife to be here. What does that mean? And what are the adjustments I need to make to make both of those things happen? And so that's why I always say that uh, people are my favorite animal because you know, we want to make a difference and it's people that make it make a difference. So inspiring them to do so is, is is what inspires me to work at a zoo. You know, and I think another advantage of a smaller community zoo is we have the ability to really move throughout the zoo and talk to our guests and really interact with the people. And when you talk about an experience, you're right. Seeing, you know, for instance, at our zoo here, our Shoney, our grizzly bear up close being something, doing something goofy like grizzly bears do. That's one part of it. But for me to stand next to some of our guests and talk about Shoney's story and talk about grizzly bears in general, you know, that that's another level of inspiration that you can't get via a TV or if you're, you're at, say, the San Diego zoo i mean it's busy there it's it's massive and having a bit of time to talk with our guests really is a, a vital component of what we do way amen to that 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 is sure true and it's always encouraging to talk to the guests they're so varied in their opinions and from different places and different backgrounds but at the end of the day everybody loves wildlife it's just something innate in us you know some would you know, some would say it's it's an evolutionary part of who we are. We've got this attraction to life and living and wildlife. And the zoo is that magic place where you get to take that love, that passion that we all have to one level or another for other living things and connect it to the system of the earth that supports us all. 
And we at the at the auto, I can talk at the auto falls, we haven't always done that the best that we can. I think zoos in general could do that better, but we're sure working hard on it right now in a very intense way to try to do that in a fashion that makes more sense, has a bigger, more long-lasting impact. Now, you said you've been there for about seven, a little over seven years. What kind of changes have you seen over that time or are anticipating, I guess, in the next seven, for example? Well, that's a great question. It's been a very intense seven years, I'll tell you. It's been <laughs> yeah. <very> wonderful, <laughs> intense, and challenging. And got new land to expand into. We've got land now to the north of our zoo and the south of our zoo. We're building a new exhibit in the south part of the land, so that's going on. We built a brand new, wonderful education center that now is there right at the front of the zoo that hosts all of our programs and various events. It's, it's just been extraordinary. And then here recently, besides the improvements that have happened to the zoos over the zoo over the years, the, the other big project that has just completed is we've added Funland to the zoo. So the zoo now operates the wonderful little amusement park that has been uh, part of our community since the 1940s. If you can imagine, it's been shut down for a few years to uh, refurbish it all, to clean it all, to replace the appropriate parts, to redo this, have the experts come in and inspect. And, you know, with rides that old, you expect it's it's time to get a little love. And we've certainly done that for a few years. And now the uh, opened in August, will be open again in, in the spring, Funland, and all the proceeds from Funland now go to support support the Idaho Falls Zoo. And uh, interesting enough, uh, Funland actually had its sister amusement park in Pocatello at one time, Pleasureland, mm-hmm. was run by the, by the same people. Yeah, and I think it's another wonderful example where, as a zoo, we do ask a lot from our community. We want and ask for their support, but we also give back to the community. And, you know, getting Funland back up and operating, you, know, you have just made a complete day for a family. You know, and, and, and it's going to be a day that they will remember and it's a, it's going to be a day that they want to come back and do over and over again because it's just not about, hey, come to us. We're offering you um, our own community support and, and it's just it's a wonderful opportunity to bring families together. It is. There's nothing like those sorts of things. You mentioned walking around and talking to the visitors. The the most gratifying thing, of course, about it is just seeing so many happy people. People come into the zoo, they're just so grateful and so happy and just interacting with wonderful wildlife is just a magical sort of thing to, to happen to anybody. And we're always working on making that interaction more intimate and more educational and more appropriate for the animal and more appropriate for the visitor in a way that everybody wins over and over again. It, it, it is a magical place, the zoo. So in, in our southeast Idaho climate, how do you manage, you have animals that are coming from all sorts of backgrounds, environments. How do you, how do you manage that in, in our particular part of the world? It's not easy. And deciding which animals can be here or not, that is the single biggest thing for us. You know, are they, can they survive in our climate just fine? Or if they can't, how is it that we adjust for that to keep them happy and healthy year round? So every species, of course, has its own story. But in general, I'd say the bulk of our animals do just fine all winter long with a 
an accessible, warm space for them to go in if they choose to. And we just give them the choice. You want to be outside and play in the snow or you want to go inside and be warm and toasty? And you'd be surprised, you know, how often you can watch the lions romping around in the snow, (laughs) enjoying the cold. And then, you know, going back inside to get warmed up as well. But uh, they, they have their option to do that. We do have a few buildings on our grounds that we take some of the other tropical animals that need a larger space indoor, mostly birds, mostly birds that need to go inside. But we're able to accommodate everybody in a happy and healthy way just just here on our grounds. See, that's the great part about Zoo Idaho being strictly indigenous. <laughs> Collection planning, which is how you decide what animals you want to bring in or what animals are going to remain at the zoo. Right. My collection planning, there's not a whole lot of complex decision making within that. You know, where where David, again, when you're looking at exotics, he's absolutely right. You have to decide what you can bring in, what animals you can maintain in a healthy, happy way. And sometimes it's not cost effective to bring in a, a tropical animal, you know, that requires a lot of space and warm temperatures. And may not be appropriate for the animal. Right, right, right. You know, it's always the big decision is that it is, is that animal at the Idaho Falls Zoo healthy? Is it socially healthy? Is it genetically healthy? Right. You know, is all of its, it's, all of its needs met in a way intellectually and physically? And can we do that or not? And that's, that's the big decision. And, and sometimes we can, often we can, but a lot of times we can't. So right. we just don't, don't bring the animal in. And I'm glad David brought that up because it's not just as simple as, hey, I want to bring this animal in. It is there's a whole lot of questions that we have to answer before we do that. And of course, the animal's health and welfare will always take precedence. That's exactly right. And it's been one of the big shouldn't have been such a surprise to me moving to the zoo. But the, the probably the biggest surprise is to see how complicated that is. And inspiring to see the zoo staff with their technical expertise and their practical experience come together to solve these problems and make these decisions with the health of the animal always at the utmost. How much money and time and talent goes into the well-being of the animals in in, in our collections is an inspiring thing to watch. And we don't talk about it enough. We need to talk about it more, the investment that goes into the animals, because holding an animal captive is a big, a big thing to do. And it should be scrutinized mm-hmm. and people should wonder about it and go, is that, the, is that appropriate or not? That's a healthy thing to do. And so for us to spend the time we need to make sure we can answer positively to all of those and feel good about the animals in our care takes a tremendous amount of effort. And again, as an inspiring thing to watch the, the zoo staff go through it. It's, it's been a very gratifying experience. Well, we, we appreciate what you and your staff are, are doing over there. We started the show with a trivia question that I know you know the answer to. When, uh, when did the Idaho Falls Zoo begin? Well, formally, it began in 1934 in our wonderful Tapas Park in Idaho Falls. There were some scattered little zoos, little few animals in cages about the town before that. But that was the formal beginning when they brought everything together at uh, at Toffus Park in 1930. And and so isn't it amazing that you know our museum, Peter's Zoo, your zoo, all opened in the 
I think we're 34, 32, and 34. In the, in the middle of the Depression, these institutions that are still here, uh, 90 years plus going, I think it's really impressive that these are, these are outgrowths of people putting institutions together during a really bad time in the country's history, and they're still standing. Boy, and imagine how many people have been impacted over all those decades because someone had the courage to say, let's make this happen. I know things are tough. Let's make something positive and wonderful happen. And think of all the millions of people that are impacted as a result just here in Eastern Idaho because of our three institutions and people making that, that, that decision. Yeah, we had to bring the community together right. to build these institutions, and we're still bringing the community together. And, you know, David, we really want to thank you for joining us. And if you guys can't hear the passion in David's voice on this on this episode, then maybe you need to go to your audiologist and, and <laughs> get your hearing checked out. And I am so happy and so glad, David, that you're up there at Idaho Falls and continuing to make uh, Idaho Falls Zoo a wonderful place. So, again, thank you so much for joining us. And for all who are interested at the zoo, check out idahofalls.idaho.gov and just look for Idaho Falls Zoo. Thank you, David. The Nature of Idaho receives support from listener contributions to KISU-FM. Shows are produced at Idaho State University with editing and production by Kalise Kendall and Jamin Anderson. Music is by Idaho's very own Sons of Bannock. Audio of this and all past episodes of The Nature of Idaho can be found at KISU.org from Spotify and other select podcast services. Send your thoughts and suggestions to noidkisu at isu.edu. 